0: This podcast contains true stories involving extreme violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to This Desire for Peace, a podcast examining the competing visions of peace and in Oregon's Snake War. I'm Matthew Vocal, Thank you for listening. In the last episode of the podcast, we looked at the final incidents that set off the war. In this episode, we'll look at the role newspapermen played in the war. We'll also examine actions taken by George Lemuel Woods, the governor of Oregon, and the military actions of Lieutenant Colonel George Crook. By 1866, the Snake War had been going on for two years, with no apparent resolution in view. Small, sharp fights continued to add to the death count. Volunteer troops from California and Oregon burned Paiute camps, and with them, vital food set aside for the long, cold winter months. The survival of the Paiutes now depended upon raids on white settlements. Newspaper editors of the region never missed the opportunity to detail the raids, and they used those incidents to call for increased military action against the tribe. But those attacks, more often than not, did not involve killings. Instead, the raids involved theft of cattle, horses, or supplies made by a people who sought merely to survive in the face of incredible hardship. Still, the editors didn't let the facts get in the way of their opinions. The Owyhee Avalanche of Silver City, Idaho, was one of the most vocal advocates of vigorous warfare against the Paiutes. One article from February 1866 read, The government authorities must wake up to a live and active sense of duty. They must, if they wish to do any good, send out large forces, authorize and require the commanding officers to pursue, slay, and utterly destroy the noble red remorseless murderers and treat with them afterwards. This policy, and this alone, will secure the safety of immigration and settlers and secure the rapid settlement of these rich regions of country. The editors were serious about destroying the tribe. They added, the scripture says, give milk to babes and meat to old men. And a full translation would say, deadly bullets for Indians by night or day, sleeping or waking and indiscriminately. For the white settlers, peace meant a world without Indians. The newspapers were relentless in their reporting of atrocities attributed to natives. Few incidents were ever reported concerning thefts and murders committed by whites against the Paiutes. Reports of Paiute atrocities were often followed by calls for retribution of the worst kind. The state rights democrat out of Albany, Oregon, exhibited outright hypocrisy when it wrote a vitriolic assessment of natives, labeling the men as greasy miscreants who desired only for the scalps of whites. Immediately after that passage, Came another praising the truths, consistency, and doctrines and precepts of the Bible. Apparently, the greasy miscreants were not included in Jesus Christ's injunction in John 13:34 to love one another. The Civil War ended in 1865, and the regular army troops slowly began replacing the volunteer troops in the West. Major General Henry Halleck, the former general in chief and the newly appointed commander of the Division of the Pacific, saw the situation as nearly beyond his control. He did not have enough men to meet the demands of the settlers, nor did he display the same antipathy for the natives as the settlers. He did not have enough men to meet the demands of the settlers, nor did he display the same kind of antipathy for the natives. The post-Civil War reconstruction of the south required the bulk of the army's manpower. So in the meantime, other divisions would simply have to make do with what they had. Halleck complained about the disproportionate troop distribution, and in his 1868 report, he outlined the problem. He pointed out the Snake War, and the conflicts with the Apaches in Arizona, and how the division of the Pacific did not have the manpower to bring a quick peace to those regions. Halleck believed authorities in Washington were simply ignoring the problem. Without a large military presence in the Department of the Columbia, The violence between settlers and the Paiutes continued virtually unabated. Halleck wrote of the inability of the army to contain the bloodshed, saying, In revenge for savage barbarities, the frontier settlers kill the Indians without regard to their individual innocence or guilt. The understaffed army was incapable of disrupting this cycle. He continued, The military are powerless to prevent this. Consequently, The Indians retaliate by murdering innocent whites without regard to age or sex. Halleck blamed the problem on the national Indian policies and system, labeling them worse than useless. Even if Halleck had more troops at his disposal, it isn't likely that it would have created any kind of peace benefiting the Paiutes, regardless of Halleck's own feelings for their plight. More troops probably meant more Paiute corpses. For Halleck, peace meant only an end to fighting. As violence continued to build in 1866, the papers pointed fingers at the Army for not hunting down the Paiutes with more vigor. The editor of the Oregon City Enterprise wrote, The Indians have stolen an immense amount of stock from the settlers and murdered many persons, right under the eyes and arms of the troops for past years. Yes, they have even taken the soldiers' own animals and old Halleck has never interfered to render that assistance he should. It is sincerely hoped that not a red skin will be spared in all that great scope of country. No attempt was made to mask what that meant. It continued, exterminate the race is the word, and we hope it may be fully done. This lack of tolerance and sympathy for the Native Americans was the product of racism in its most sinister form. Never was it the fault of white civilians in precipitating conflict, no. Instead, it was the fault of natives themselves, as well as the fault of the army for not doing more to punish the Paiutes. Rhetoric from the newspapers made peace and any kind of coexistence seem impossible. Some settlers decided to do the job themselves. On February 14th, 1866, a group of men met in the Challenge Saloon in Silver City, Idaho. Their business was to determine a solution to the end Their business was to determine a solution to end Indian raids in the Owyhee region and they resolved to raise an armed posse for the purpose of Indian hunting as incentive members of the posse were to be paid for every scalp they took 100 dollars for the scalp of a man 50 dollars for a woman's scalp and 25 dollars for everything in the shape of an Indian under 10 years of age Soon after, a body of citizens in Boise announced its support of the resolution and called on the territorial governor to offer his support. However, the governor was not willing to lend his support. Instead, he asked that the posse be disbanded. He wanted to conclude a treaty with the tribes. In frustration, the editors of the Owyhee Avalanche wrote, Wanted in Idaho, a governor that is a man, not an old imbecile as we now have. In the same edition, The editors detailed another attack on two settlers. Both had been killed, and one had his heart cut out, and both men's heads were beaten into a jelly, reported the paper. Shifting into a violent shout for extermination, the editors continued, here are two more victims of these biped hyenas. Two more good men have given their lives in pioneer pursuits. Thus are the arguments painfully multiplied in favor of more troops and the utter extermination of the Indian tribes. Can it be that we are much longer to record the humiliating facts that government will not protect her pioneer citizens, that the savages who delight in burning his property, taking his life, scalping his lifeless corpse, cutting his heart out, etc., etc., are to be fed and clothed for so doing, as they do nothing else? How long, ye red rapists, how long? How long? This view was typical of the editors of the Oahi Avalanche. The editors were, in fact, brothers, John and Joe Wasson. They had come to the West in search of fortune like so many others of the time. While the Wassons made the trek, natives attacked their wagon train. The incident generated in the Wassons a long-lasting hatred of natives, regardless of the tribe. That hatred burned hot in their editorials. The new governor of Oregon, George Lemuel Woods, held the same views as the Wassons, and his actions led to even greater suffering for the Paiutes. Born in Missouri, Woods had been a prospector during the California Gold Rush, and like the Wassons, one of the men in his party was killed by natives. He later settled in Oregon and took up farming, but when a school opened nearby, he attended and became interested in law. Woods was successful in the legal business, and for a time, he served as a judge before his election as governor of Oregon in 1866. Several months after his election, he embarked on a trip to the eastern states to campaign for other Republicans, and while there, he became friends with Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. Woods later used that friendship to bring about his most heinous act. As Woods got used to his new duties as governor, fights erupted in bloody spasms throughout the east side of the state. These fights not only resulted in dead and wounded, but also in captives. Prisoners created a problem for the Army in the Division of the Pacific. General Halleck called the issue a matter of serious embarrassment, and he wrote that Indian agents did not want the captives put on reservations. The issues that could arise, such as a breakout or conflict within the reservations themselves, may have seemed too great a risk to take for the agents. The Army had no place to put them either to keep the captives at military posts was not practical. Not only would it require additional troops to guard them, but the army would have to feed them. As the army already grappled with low troop numbers, especially in the Department of the Columbia, there was no way any could be spared. Halleck insisted that the army has no authority to feed the Indians, nor can we establish and organize Indian reservations, as we have no appropriations of money which can be employed for such purposes. As it stood, the army had three options. Give the captives away as slaves to other natives, parole survivors, or take no prisoners. One special unit chose the latter option. In fact, it was organized for that very purpose. Governor Woods called for the organization and arming of 100 warriors from the Warm Springs Reservation for use in the conflict. Though the department commander, General Frederick Steele, opposed the move, Woods pressed his friend Edwin Stanton to intervene, and soon Woods got his way. To incentivize the warfare, the warriors were allowed to keep whatever spoils they took. William C. McKay and John Darrah, employees at the Warm Springs Agency, led the outfit. J.W. Parent Huntington, the superintendent of Indian Affairs in Oregon, was opposed to the idea of giving no quarter. Believing the Warm Springs natives were already civilized in part, Huntington worried that the men would relapse into their savage ways. Yet he remained angry with the Paiutes because of the failed treaty with Paulina, and in a report, he reiterated a statement he made before, that nothing is to be done but fight and exterminate them. Huntington concluded, And what I then said is most true now. To him, no peace could exist between the Paiutes and the Whites. The only solution was to exterminate them. As the Warm Springs warriors were enlisting for their service, a lieutenant made a speech reiterating the order to take no prisoners, not even among the women and children. Still, when the killing began, the Warm Springs warriors hesitated to fulfill that order to kill the women and children. In one incident on the Crooked River, the warriors attacked a Piute camp killing the men and taking 14 women and children as captives. The accompanying officers reiterated the order, but the warriors protested. Given the past conflicts between the tribes, it's likely they feared retaliation against their own families back at the agency. But the officers were insistent, and the warriors killed and scalped the captives without resistance. Huntington learned of the incident and was appalled. He wrote, I shudder when I recall the fact that this is the first instance on record in which soldiers in the service and wearing the uniform of the United States have, by express orders, butchered in cold blood, unresisting women and children. It may be said that these Indians were savages, waging relentless war upon the white race, and that this was only a retaliation in kind. But even this is not true, as their habit has been to make prisoners and slaves of women and children captured. William McKay, the civilian leader of the warriors, noted in his journal whenever his men inflicted casualties among the Paiutes. His injury from January 20th, 1867, is particularly haunting. Having sent out a party the day before, McKay decided to ride out after them. He wrote, met them coming back with nine scalps, had demolished and annihilated the camp, and not one escaped, then traveled three miles further killed one man, one woman, and child, and surprised another camp, and demolished it, killed five women and one child. This type of warfare, waged by McKay and the Warm Springs men, could only happen in a war without rules, conducted by a government whose policy was no longer based on peace, but extermination. General Steele eventually came to embrace the idea of arming the Warm Springs natives, He wrote in his annual report in 1867 that the Indian scouts have done most wonderful service. It is my opinion that 100, in addition to those now employed, would exterminate the hostile bands before next spring. The governor of Oregon and the white settlers in the region supported the total destruction of the Paiutes. Huntington no longer opposed it, and now the commander of the Department of the Columbia, was a convert to the religion of what was effectively genocide. By 1867, there were only two choices for the Paiutes, surrender or death. But even before the war, authorities in the federal government knew the tribe would have to make that very decision. Eight years earlier, Edward R. Geary, Huntington's predecessor as superintendent of Indian affairs, wrote about the Paiutes saying, Approached by the advancing and refluent wave of civilization, there is neither respite nor escape. They must rise with the billows or sink beneath them. The alternative is civilization or annihilation. In other words, the only hope for the Paiutes was the complete surrender of themselves and their culture. There was no room for Indians in the new world the whites were creating in the West. The spring of 1867 was cold and wet and McKay and the warriors waited near the reservation for more orders. In May, papers arrived with orders for the Warm Springs contingent to protect a supply shipment to Fort Klamath, and then to proceed to Camp C.F. Smith. There, they were to join Lieutenant Colonel George Crook. George Crook was born on September 28th, 1828, in the backcountry town of Taylorsville, Ohio. He entered West Point in 1848 during the Mexican War. While there, he learned the basics of military drill, engineering, surveying, and other useful martial skills. His performance at the academy was less than stellar, and he graduated near the bottom of his class. But he received a military commission and made a valuable friendship with another cadet from Ohio, Philip Sheridan. After his graduation, Crook traveled to Northern California to join his army unit as a brevet lieutenant. The task of the Army was to maintain peace between the natives and the newly arrived immigrants, many of whom were miners. Beginning at Fort Humboldt, later shifting to Fort Jones, and finally to Fort Crook, the young lieutenant came into contact with several tribes, including the Achamauis, Modocs, and Klamaths. He took part in several campaigns against the tribes in the region, and still carried an Achamaui arrowhead in his hip. Crook was a complex, an enigmatic figure, and he rarely took time to explain the reasoning behind some of his actions. His attitude toward the Native Americans was no different. Crook believed the troubles with the natives almost always stemmed from something the whites instigated, but when it came to fighting those natives, he was relentless and did not hesitate to kill them himself. Like the rest of the regular Army troops, Crook returned to the East in 1861 for the Civil War and quickly rose to the rank of general. Three years later as a brevet major general of volunteers, he joined his friend Phil Sheridan in his valley campaign. The destructive and controversial scorched earth campaign devastated the agricultural Shenandoah Valley and it foreshadowed Crook's relentless fighting style against the indigenous tribes in the years that followed. When the war finally drew to a close in 1865, Crook felt slighted by his friend Sheridan, believing he did not give him the recognition he really deserved. Crook later wrote in his autobiography, saying, I regret to say that I learned too late that it was not what a person did, but it was what he got the credit of doing that gave him a reputation at the close of the war. Clearly, Crook was angry about the lack of recognition he received from the Civil War service, and, over 30 years after the event, he still looked back in frustration. After the conclusion of the Civil War, Crook's superior sent him back to the West, and he arrived at Fort Boise on December 11, 1866, as a commander to the 23rd Infantry. When I arrived at Boise, things could not well have been worse, he wrote. It seemed to him that the natives had the entire region in a state of siege. Though reports of depredations arrived nearly every day, he found that the military officers there were constantly drunk and inept, and that they had done almost nothing to stop the bloodshed. The Wassons proclaimed from the avalanche that Crook was the right man for the job. They wrote that the commander had experience in the Indian Wars, and that he would be able to sufficiently punish the natives. When the Paiutes attacked Whites west of Fort Boise, Crook decided to pursue, taking only a toothbrush and a new pair of underwear, and set out with a company from the 1st U.S. Cavalry and the Shoshone Scouts to find the perpetrators. As the force moved south along the Owyhee River, The weather hindered its progress. Crook's men wanted to call off the chase, but Crook pushed on. The troops found a band of Paiutes under Howluck along the river and struck it at first light. The Wassons reported on the conflict, writing that a number of natives mounted horses, but all who did were shot down by Crook's men. As the killing went on through the rocks and sagebrush, only a few managed to escape, one of them being Howluck. In his autobiography, Crook remembered the fight, coldly stating that he and his men killed a good many. His force killed about 30 Paiutes and destroyed all the food and supplies left by Halleck's band. A civilian who rode with the troops wrote to the Avalanche, saying that he had a good time killing Indians. Crook was satisfied with the result. That ended any more depredations from that band. The Wassons praised Crook and wrote that the fight would have significant effects on the outcome of the war. After the fight, Crook chose to keep up the hunt to the delight of the Wassons and the white settlers. Howluck, whose band had been so badly defeated by Crook, was an unusually large chief who locals frequently referred to as Bigfoot because of his massive foot size. He was also the same chief who convinced Paulina to leave the Klamath Reservation in 1866. And while Howlick eluded capture for another year, Paulina, on the other hand, did not have long to live. After sneaking away from the reservation, Paulina was free with his family. But like other bands, they had to depend on raiding to survive. In April 1867, he and a few others stole some cattle from a rancher and drove them over to Little Trout Creek near present-day Ashwood, Oregon about 20 miles east of the Warm Springs Agency. This time, they were pursued. Settlers Howard Maupin and James Clark followed Paulina to the creek and opened fire with repeating rifles. Paulina fell with a wound in his hip, but the two vigilantes continued shooting, their bullets repeatedly tearing through the chief's body. The other Paiutes fled, leaving Paulina helpless and bleeding on the ground. Maupin and Clark approached the wounded chief and they watched as Paulina drew his knife, jammed the blade into the ground and broke it off. He would not face the indignity of being scalped by his own knife. Standing over Paulina, Maupin drew his revolver and shot him in the head. Paulina was dead. Clark and Maupin became local celebrities and were paraded through the Dalles and Canyon City all the while brandishing Paulina's scalp. After defeating Howlick's band, Crook's command shifted over to the Malheur River, where they soon found another band of Paiutes. Attempting to storm the hideout, the soldiers could make no headway through the dense willows. Crook called off the attack, and in the dark, the two sides struck up a lively conversation, and soon Crook decided to invite the Paiutes into his camp for a peace negotiation. The soldiers fed and conversed with them in a friendly manner. Crook was not too trustful, however. Some of his men urged Crook to kill the Paiutes while they were in the camp, but he let it play out. The fraternization between troops and natives continued and slowly shifted into the Paiute encampment, feigning peaceful intentions. Crook had his men leave their rifles outside the camp, but each retained a revolver at his side. Conversation turned to trading and soon nearly all of Crook's troops were in the native encampment and all armed and ready for a fight. Upon realizing their predicament, the Paiutes surrendered. Crook took them without bloodshed, but it proved to be an anomaly. Crook brought the prisoners to Camp Lyon, a small military post built to protect Jordan Valley in Oregon, and the roads into Silver City, Idaho. He still didn't return to Fort Boise, electing not to return until he felt the situation with the Paiutes was over. It was two years before he returned. Plunging into the relatively unexplored country of eastern Oregon, Crook and his men crossed the canyons and dry, open ground of sagebrush flats. The January weather was cold, making the journey miserable. After several days, the command came in sight of a massive, jagged ridge towering above the surrounding desert. The treeless eastern face of Steen's mountain stood as a wall in the path of the men, its face cut through with glacial canyons. Almost seven years earlier, in the aftermath of the Utter and Van Ornam massacres, a company of soldiers under Major Enoch Steen was on an exploration of the country and found a camp of Paiutes, which they attacked. Most of the natives fled down the face of the mountain and escaped, but not before Steen captured several men, women, and children. Crook's Shoshone scouts found a camp of Paiutes on the western side of the mountain, and the soldiers moved quickly to reach the site for another dawn attack. Sending the scouts behind the camp to prevent any Paiutes from making an escape, Crook had his men in position to strike at first light and gave the order that no shots should be made until the soldiers were in the camp. No warning was to be given. The morning light broke, but as Crook was about to give the order to attack, His horse bolted and carried him straight into the camp among the Wikiups. His men did not follow orders, and as soon as Crook's horse shot forward, so did his command, guns firing away. The horse did not stop until he was on the other side of the camp. Crook dismounted, grabbed his rifle, and ran back to join the slaughter in the camp. In the cacophony of shooting and shouting, at least one Paiute man sang his death song as the soldiers fired and the Shoshone scouts gunned down the men, women, and children. When it was over, at least 60 Piutes were dead. Of that number, 27 were women and children. Only two of the Paiute men survived. The remaining women and children were taken as prisoners to Camp C.F. Smith, about 30 miles to the southeast. Over the next six months, Crook operated from Camp Warner In south-central Oregon. Camp Warner initially stood on the east side of Warner Peak but after heavy snowfall that winter and spring Crook decided to move the camp to the west across Warner Valley northeast of present-day Lakeview, Oregon. From the new location Crook searched for and attacked Paiutes at every opportunity ranging from southern Oregon and up to the Harney Valley near present-day Burns. In July Crook and his men traveled to Camp C.F. Smith for an expedition to the Pueblo Mountains, south of Steens Mountain. There, they met up with the Warm Springs warrior contingent. Camp C.F. Smith, a small outpost built on a marshy creek surrounded by sagebrush-covered hills, seemed an odd place for the gathering of 200 troops and over 100 Shoshone and Warm Springs warriors. But in the confines of the camp, Crook's conglomerate army took shape. It was July 1867, and now he had the Warm Springs scouts to search out every native camp in the area. Sometime around July 27th, a company of soldiers and Shoshone scouts, together with a number of Warm Springs warriors, located a band of Paiutes and surrounded them in a canyon in the Pueblo Mountains. Crook himself was there, and he permitted the scouts and warriors to attack the trapped natives, holding his own troops in reserve. By the time the fight ended, at least 30 Paiutes lay dead and scalped. None of Crook's number were injured. While Crook operated out of Camp C.F. Smith, another addition arrived. The reporter Joe Wasson. The 26-year-old Wasson had needed a break from the publishing business. The strain of running a newspaper had taken a toll on Joe's health. To restore his health, he chose the logical way to recuperate. He went to war he decided to accompany Crook on his campaign and caught up with him at the remote army post. For reasons never specified by Crook or Wasson, Crook permitted the newspapermen to join him, which was unusual at that point in the Indian Wars. Wasson was among the first wartime correspondents during the Indian Wars in the West. Historians have speculated on Crook's reasoning for allowing Wasson to accompany him. One speculation is that Crook wanted the recognition he did not receive during the Civil War and, by bringing a correspondent, he would finally get some of that recognition. In other words, damaged pride may have led Crook to accept Wasson so his actions would be recognized not only by his superiors, but by the public. Wasson's reports for the avalanche were vivid. He described the moods of the soldiers, the places they visited, and the various fights he experienced describing the dusty outpost of Camp Smith in his first letter back to Silver City. He wrote that it is the liveliest place I've seen in the upper country since the early days of the Boise Basin. He described a war dance held by the Warm Springs and Shoshone scouts when a portion of the Warm Springs force arrived in the camp. They made a display of scalps. Their war songs may be music to them. Together with the Boise Indians here, they made Camp Howell last night. The next day, the Combined Force set out for Camp Warner, Crook's preferred base of operations in the region. Just a few miles before reaching Warner, the column crossed a small set of tracks oriented southward. Crook wasted no time in sending his scouts to follow the trail to ascertain the source. Wasson rode along with the Warm Springs scouts. He was eager to catch a glimpse of some real action. The trail traversed rough ground, through a lava bed, and sagebrush-covered hills. Finally, the scouts saw a small encampment of Paiutes along the marshy remnants of a seasonal lake. The Paiutes apparently did not see Daras and McKay's scouts, and therefore had no warning when the officers ordered the scouts to kill or capture those in the camp. The incident did not require much shooting, and it was over in a matter of minutes, except for several Paiute men who took refuge in some rocks. The scouts set the grass and scrub ablaze, burning the holdouts alive. Wasson, together with McKay, Dara, and one of the warriors, used the moment to get a few shots off at a Piute man taking cover in the grass beyond the scene, though Wasson did not find his mark. The Paiute was not spared, however, as one of the three others gunned him down while he tried to hide. Reflecting on the moment, Wasson demonstrated his absolute apathy toward the plight of the tribe, when instead of expounding on his emotions after his first combat experience, he joked about how much metal it took to kill a single man. Crook remarked on the fight by simply stating, we killed a lot of them. As the situation wound down, Wasson left for Camp Warner. Later, he learned that the scouts had killed and scalped 11 Paiute men and took 11 women and children captive. The fate of these women and children in the years to follow is not entirely known but Wasson gave a description of what typically happened after such a capture. The Warm Springs warriors, who took the captives, retained those prisoners for themselves. Crook apparently sanctioned this practice and seemed to have never taken issue with it. The scouts used the women for labor around the camp, while the troops forced the others to lead soldiers to other Paiute encampments. This was nothing more than slave labor. It is important to note that when this incident occurred in 1867, it had been two years since Congress passed the 13th Amendment to ban slavery within the United States. However, the slave industry was alive and healthy in the West, as tribes were not necessarily subject to obeying certain laws, such as the constitutional abolishment of slavery. Rather than pay for the food and housing of captured Paiutes, the government allowed the scouts to take the captives as their personal slaves. The manner in which the soldiers later forced some women and children to reveal other camp locations is not stated except in one instance a few months later. After the bloody debacle at Infernal Caverns, soldiers strangled a captured Paiute woman and threatened to hang her if she did not provide the information the soldiers wanted. Though the incident was horrifying, there is nothing to confirm whether or not this same tactic was employed prior to other women disclosing the locations of their friends and family. Not only did the enslavement or disposal of captive Paiutes save the government money, but those captives, forced or tortured in some way or another, saved the army time and helplessly hastened the demise of their own culture. The fact that the Warm Springs Warriors had taken the Paiute women and children captive, however, shows a departure from the order to take no prisoners. It's not known why they were allowed to keep the captives or who made the change in their orders. It may have been Crook, who didn't care for killing women and children, though to what degree he disliked it isn't clear. His men had killed without discrimination on Steen's Mountain the previous January, and he showed no remorse for the action. At the end of August, Crook and his men embarked on the campaign that culminated in the savage Battle of Infernal Caverns, a battle covered in the first episode of this podcast. The campaign exhausted the soldiers and exasperated Crook, Years after the battle, Lieutenant John Bork, Crook's friend and aide, wrote about the condition of the troops as they fruitlessly searched for the elusive Paiutes. Even though Bork was attending West Point at the time of the campaign, his comments are important because he likely got his information from Crook himself. Bork wrote that the condition of the whole command was distressing. Over 300 miles had been marched from the base of supplies at Camp Warner, The men were fatigued and disheartened by constant but profitless skirmishing with an enemy who seemed proof against all wiles and blandishments to coax him into a general engagement. Lieutenant William Parnell, a survivor of the famous Charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War, led troops alongside Crook during the campaign. He commented that the Paiutes were smart and that it was no easy task that Crook had before him. Were it possible for him to concentrate the scattered bands of Indians and with his troops give them battle, the problem would be solved. But for hundreds of miles, the country had to be thoroughly scattered to find, after perhaps weeks of hard and tedious marching, but a small band of warriors who would scatter to the wind at the approach of troops. The Paiutes must have known that to directly confront the might of the soldiers most likely meant death. It was better to avoid the troops and disappear into the vast fortress of expansive wilderness. Bork tended to portray Crook in the best light possible, but the supposed victory at Infernal Caverns only increased the frustration of the command. They had failed to subdue the natives at the battle, and the troop losses were heavy. It appears that even Wasson was exhausted. He usually detailed each day and location they visited, but in the initial days after the battle, His typical descriptions lacked that detail. Despite the exhaustion, Crook began planning his next move. It's evident that he believed peace would come from constant pressure on the Paiutes. As long as Crook was in charge, any hopes of security and sanctuary faded for the Paiutes. As Crook and those under his command scoured southeast Oregon, problems arose on the Klamath Reservation. It had been three years since Huntington concluded the treaty with the Klamaths, Modocs, and Yehuskin Paiutes, yet it still had not gone into effect. The government failed to furnish appropriations of food, money, or supplies to those natives confined to the reservation. Eventually, a number of Yahuaskans left the reservation, including some signatories of the treaty. Leaving the reservation without the consent of the agent was forbidden and soon an army detachment from Fort Klamath was in pursuit, together with a band of Klamath scouts. The unit, led by Lieutenant John F. Small, attacked several Paiute encampments near Silver Lake before shifting south to Summer Lake, where they attacked one more camp and captured a woman. As in other instances, Small's men forced her to disclose the location of another encampment at the Shiwakan Marsh just a few miles to the southeast. The column arrived near the camp around 3 a.m., and Small posted his men around it to prevent the escape of its inhabitants. The Paiutes visited the area frequently. John C. Fremont wrote of it during his visit to the area over 20 years earlier. The camp sat at the point where the fish-rich Shiwakan River emerged from the mountains and flowed into a large marsh. The roots of plants in the soggy soil were a staple in local native diets. When the light appeared over the dusty hills to the east, Small and his men threw themselves into the camp. The Indians, seeing all chance of escape cut off, received us with yells of defiance, shots from two rifles and one revolver and a shower of arrows, wrote Small. Those Piutes not immediately shot down attempted to flee into the marsh. Within minutes, the bodies of 23 lay strewn through the camp and marsh. Reminiscent of past conflicts between the Klamaths and Paiutes, Klamath scouts moved through the bodies, scalping the dead. A few days later, the Oregon Sentinel reported, one Indian, who was only wounded in the arm, played possum, but when a Klamath was scalping him, it hurt so bad he had to skin his teeth and then got a ball through his head. The article concluded by stating, this has been a very successful raid and has made several bad Indians very good indeed. Lieutenant Small will receive great praise. Reporters never mentioned the reasons for the fight, and had they known, it's doubtful it would have changed their approval of the outcome. It simply did not matter that the government failed in its obligations, relying on a troubled reservation policy, which led to the slaughter of those who chose to act rather than starve. For whites, Peace meant the complete submission of the Pites to white authority. It meant the eradication of their way of life and their land. It meant the death of the Indian.